Good morning. Please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 4. Our focus this morning will be on the passage in verses 38 through 44. Now, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke together now for the past six months. And hopefully, over those uh, many weeks, uh, we've all come to appreciate Luke's skill as a writer. Uh, like he's just very systematic, uh, he's a very thoughtful writer. Luke, and for that matter, all the gospel writers, they're not just recording daily journals of Jesus' sayings and doings, like today Jesus did this, and then today Jesus did this, and then today Jesus did this. Uh, No, they're presenting us with certain accounts, uh, with intentionally chosen narratives from Jesus' life. Uh, Like if everything that he did was recorded, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Uh, And so they're purposefully selecting stories and putting them together in order to show us, the reader, who Jesus is and what he came to do. And you'll remember that back in the introduction to this gospel, uh, Luke states those intentions very clearly. He is writing an orderly account Uh, for Theophilus, so that Theophilus might have certainty concerning the things that he's been taught. The Gospels generally, but specifically Luke's Gospel, uh, it's written, it's structured, it's ordered with the purpose of conveying a message. And that's true not only of the book as a whole, but it's also true of its smaller sections. Uh, And Luke chapter 4 The chapter that we've been covering over the last few Sundays is an excellent example of this. You'll remember that after the temptation, uh, Luke starts off his account of Jesus' Galilean ministry uh, by giving us the story of his visit to his hometown of Nazareth. That's in verses 16 through 30. And in that episode, you'll remember that Jesus describes himself Uh, Look at verses 18 and 19. He describes himself as the fulfillment of the Spirit-anointed Messiah promised in Isaiah 61, right? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, as that Messiah, what has he come to do? Well, he's come to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's come to set at liberty those who are oppressed, Now, that ultimately means that Jesus has come to save sinners held captive in Satan's bondage, uh, oppressed by the burden of their sin, uh, that he's come to grant them release, uh, bringing them out of the kingdom of darkness, uh, transferring them into the kingdom of light. But that message about who Jesus is and what he's come to do, well, we see that it's resoundingly rejected in the city of Nazareth, as evidenced by the fact that they drive him out, as evidenced by the fact that they want to kill him. But now look at what Luke does with the very next narrative in his gospel. And so that's verses 31 through 37. This is the passage that we covered last Sunday. What is it that comes right after that statement about who he is and what he's come to do, and then the rejection of that statement in Nazareth? What comes next? Well, Luke gives us a story in which Jesus demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that in spite of the disbelief of his hometown, he really is who he says he is. 
Jesus claims uh, to be the one who sets captives free and grants release to the oppressed. Now, all unredeemed sinners are captives to Satan. Uh, But the most extreme form, right, the most heightened expression and manifestation of that captivity is demon possession. And so Luke gives us a narrative about Jesus authoritatively driving out a demon from a demon-possessed man to demonstrate that, yeah, his claims are true. He really is the spirit-anointed Messiah who's going to set captives free. And the Nazarenes, well, they were wrong for their unbelief. And today's passage, uh, which is really just a continuation of that narrative that we covered last Sunday— Well, it serves the same exact purpose. Again, Luke is proving to us that Jesus is who he said he is, the Messiah, uh, by giving us three little like mini narratives that are going to demonstrate that truth. And so let's look now at our text, uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 38 through 44. Uh, I want you to be looking along in your own Bibles as I read. This is the word that God has for you today. And he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let's pray once again. Father, I am but a lowly sinner with nothing in my own wisdom to offer to your people. And so we ask, Father, that your wisdom would be what is proclaimed in this hour. You have told us that your wisdom is most clearly seen in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we ask that he would be proclaimed most clearly this morning. We pray for every person in this room that you would grant to us ears to hear what you are saying through your word. We pray that those who are already your children, that we would leave this room with a greater love for you and a deeper grounding in the gospel of your son. We pray for those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. God, we pray that today would be the day that they're born again through the living and abiding word of God. For the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. Well, let's start in verse 38. Uh, For those of you taking notes, uh, this section of text that we're looking at today, it uh, breaks up nicely into three sections, right? Three little mini stories. 
Uh, Story number one is in verses 38 and 39. Story number two is in verses 40 to 41. And story number three is in verses 42 through 44. Uh, And so we're just going to look at these stories one at a time. Uh, And I promise you, uh, I had had zero intention of giving you any alliteration this morning. Uh, Like last night, I'm looking at my paper. It's got story number one, story number two, story number three, and then it just, it just comes to me. Uh, I, I was not looking for it. It came looking for me. Uh, and so I share with you the, the, the fruit of my gift. Uh, we're going to look at the, the mother-in-law, the multitudes, and the mission. The mother-in-law, the multitudes, and the mission. Again, it just came to me. I wasn't looking for it. So story number one, the mother-in-law, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Let's set the scene here. Remember what just happened in verses 31 through 37. Uh, It's a Sabbath morning. There is a worship service at the synagogue in Capernaum. And once again, we find that Jesus is the teacher that morning. And all of a sudden, uh, perhaps it's in the middle of his teaching, uh, a demon begins to cause a scene. But Jesus rebukes the demon. Be silent and come out of him. And the demon obeys. The demon leaves the man unharmed. And the people are amazed. What is this word? With authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And then verse 37 tells us that word spreads very quickly about those unique events from that Sabbath morning. And so verse 38 picks up the story there. And again, it's just a continuation of last week's story. Uh, They leave the synagogue after the service, and then they head to Simon's house, uh, presumably to eat lunch, on the Sabbath day, right? That would have been the big meal of the day after the morning's worship service. Now, Simon is the guy that we better know as Peter, right? Simon Peter. And we're going to be introduced to him more fully in chapter 5. And even though he's going to eventually become the most prominent of Jesus' disciples, well, for now, as they head over to his house in Capernaum, The focus is not on him at all. He's barely mentioned here. The focus is on his mother-in-law because she's ill with a high fever. Now, we're not told what the cause of the fever was, but clearly this is a very serious matter. And Luke draws our attention to its severity, uh, first by pointing out that it wasn't just a fever, but that it was a high fever, and that may have even been like a medical term, medical lingo for a, a very serious condition. And then he emphasizes, look at the end of verse 38, how the people appeal to Jesus on our behalf. I mean, if she's got like pollen allergies or like a, a minor head cold, right? they're not going to be appealing to Jesus on her behalf. This is a serious fever. This is a serious illness. Her body is responding in full force to whatever infection is coursing through her body. And back then, without all the medical knowledge and technologies and medicines and treatments that we might have access to, something like this could have very well killed her. And so they call on Jesus to help. I mean, they did, after all, just see him miraculously cast out a demon in that morning's service. And so maybe he can help her, too. And so picture her uh, lying in bed, just completely knocked down by this illness. And Jesus stands over her. And notice the language there in verse 39. Jesus rebuked 
the fever, and it left her. Rebuked, if you've been paying attention, you'll remember that we saw that word last week. Verse 35, Jesus rebuked the demon, saying, be silent and come out of him. Uh, And then looking ahead, right, verse 41, we're going to see it again. Again, in the context of exorcisms, demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. Now, the fact that the other two times that Jesus rebukes something in this section, it's referring to driving out a demon, well, that's led some to conclude that this fever must have been caused by a demon. And so Jesus is rebuking and driving out the demon to cure her of her fever. Uh, But I don't think that's necessarily the case uh, for several reasons. Uh, First, we don't see any allusion to the demon leaving the person, uh, which is what we often see in these gospel accounts of exorcisms. But second, look at how Luke uses the same word, rebuke, in the context of Jesus calming the storm in Luke chapter 8. They went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And so there's no reason to suppose that there was a demon behind that storm and the wind there. And so just because Jesus rebukes this fever in chapter 4, It doesn't necessarily mean that there was a demon behind it any more than there's a demon behind the storm in Luke chapter 8. I think Luke is repeatedly, intentionally, purposefully using this word rebuke for a different reason. I think he's trying to communicate that just like Jesus' word has authority over the demons and that he rebukes the demon and it obeys by silently leaving the man. So, in the same way, Jesus' word has authority over physical sickness and that he rebukes this fever and it, so to speak, obeys by leaving, same language, this woman. Looking ahead to chapter 8, in the same way, Jesus' word has authority over the winds and the waves. And really, none of that should be surprising to us because Hebrews 1.3, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so all of creation not only is created by the word of God, let there be and there was, but it's also upheld and sustained by the word of his power. And that includes demons, and that includes the viruses and the bacteria that cause fevers, and that includes the atmosphere and the waters that create winds and waves. All of it is under the authority of his word. And so again, let's think about what Luke is doing here in this broader section in Luke chapter 4. Remember, he's showing us that Jesus is who he claims to be. Yes, he is the promised Messiah. Yes, he is the savior of the world. And the proof is in the authority that he so clearly displays. And here, in this little mini-narrative, Jesus specifically demonstrates his authority over physical disease and bodily suffering and what those things ultimately point to and lead to, which, of course, is death.
Like if he's really come to release and save sinners who are held captive by that last enemy of death, who are slaves to the fear of death, well then he's got to demonstrate that he has authority and power over death. And of course he's ultimately going to do that through his resurrection. But his resurrection is still 20 chapters away here all the way back in Luke chapter 4, we get this little small foretaste, a little, little preview, a foreshadowing of what is to come, right, of Christ's ultimate victory over death and this healing. And so you've got this fever. It's ailed and afflicted, this poor woman, for who knows how long. Well, Jesus commands it to leave, and it leaves. But look at what happens next with this old lady in end of verse 39. Immediately, she arose and began to serve them. Two things I want you to notice here. First is the word immediately, as in immediately she rose. And I assume that everybody in this room has been like very sick, severely ill before, with fevers and chills and all that. Well, typically, you're coming out of one of those battles. Your body's starting to recover. The fever first breaks. Well, it takes us some time to get back to 100%, right? To being back to your normal self. And so suppose someone in your family is just beginning to recover from something like this. Well, you start. You give them some saltines or something, right? Make sure they can eat. And you let them rest for a little while because, well, their body's still sore. There's still some lingering fatigue. They're still regaining strength. But this woman, she's immediately healed. She gets right up. It's like the guy who's been an invalid for 38 years in John chapter 5. You remember what Jesus says to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. It's not like this guy slowly begins to regain strength in his legs and he does a few months of PT and he's got all these rehab exercises and strength training and now he's able to get up and walk. No, it's this instantaneous, immediate, like he gets up, he takes his bed and he walks around like nothing happened in the last 38 years. In the same way, in our story, Jesus rebukes this fever and immediately, like you can just imagine, like they're taking mom's temperature. uh, One moment it's 103.2 and the next moment she's at 98.6. Like, how'd that happen? Well, Luke's point is that there is no physical or medical or epidemiological explanation here. It's just that Jesus instantly speaks the fever out of her. Again, it's Jesus clearly displaying his authority over illness. Immediately. But second, notice how after being immediately made well, she rose and began to serve them. We don't know how long she was sick. We don't know how long she was ill. We don't know how long she was incapacitated. But while she was, this woman was being served. Like, surely, while she lay ill, Peter and his wife and his brother and whoever else, the rest of the family, they're tending to her every need. But now, 
as soon as she's healed, right, immediately, it's like the tables are completely turned, and she gets up, and she starts to serve them. Remember the context, right? It's this uh, Sabbath lunch, this Sabbath meal. Uh, She's probably in the kitchen preparing the food, serving the meal to all who have come to her house on that day. And friends, that's a, a picture of what should be the response of all of God's redeemed. A heart that says, wow, Jesus has done so much for me. And just desires to serve him, not just in an abstract sense, but in serving his people. Any way possible. Prep food, sure. Wait tables, sure thing. Serve guests, whatever you need me to do. There is no service to menial, not as a repayment of debt, but just as an overflow of the heart of thankfulness. Keep that in mind, because we're going to see throughout this gospel a variety of different responses to healings that Jesus does, and not all of them are going to be positive like this one. Story number one is the mother-in-law. Which brings us to the second story within this section. Story number two is about the multitudes. So right after he heals Peter's mother-in-law, we see Jesus healing the multitudes. Here's the thing about miracles and signs and wonders. Uh, It's awfully hard to keep them quiet. Because when something amazing like that happens, word spreads fast. I remember a while back, I don't know, there was some kind of promotion. and uh, The local Haagen-Dazs ice cream shop was giving out free scoops. And listen, we're, you know, we're trying to live on a budget here, so we don't really eat too much Haagen-Dazs. You know, Briars and Edie's, that's fine. But Haagen-Dazs is like the big money. And so when you hear that Haagen-Dazs has given out free scoops, you drop everything, you round up the children, and you go. But when something amazing happens, word spreads fast. And so by the time we get there, the multitudes have already shown up. Well, free ice cream is great. Free Haagen-Dazs is really great. But when you've got this guy who can heal disease and cast out demons, you could just imagine how quickly the word spreads. A word spreads about what Jesus did that morning in the synagogue. A word spreads about what Jesus did that afternoon in healing Peter's mother-in-law. Now everyone wants to come and see him. But remember the context this is the Sabbath day. And the Jews had a lot of rules about what they could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, what they could and couldn't carry on the Sabbath. And so suppose you have this really sick relative at home and uh, you want to bring her to see Jesus. Well, you've got to wait until the Sabbath is over lest you get in trouble with the religious authorities. And so look at verse 40. It's only when the sun is setting. Translation, when the Sabbath is over that all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. Let's just picture this scene in your mind's eye. There's a line, like, forming out the door and stretching down the block and snaking around a bunch of other houses, or it's like the, the first century equivalent of a Trader Joe's. And obviously Luke is using hyperbole. All those who had any who were sick with various diseases, but you get the idea. 
right? There's all kinds of people, uh, all kinds of sicknesses coming from all kinds of places to see Jesus. And you can just imagine that as the people who are healed early on, as they go home, well, now the neighbors, they see Mr. Smith, who, you know, used to be really sick, but now he's on his own, walking perfectly healthy. What's going on here? And word would spread even further, so that even more people would then head over to Peter's house to see Jesus. And Jesus heals every last person who was sick. In verse 41, it's not just the sick, but also the demon-possessed. And just like in last week's story, just notice the total, absolute authority that Jesus demonstrates in not only casting them out, but commending them to be silent and so you just kind of see in this broader section, right, just the, the vast scope of these miracles. Uh, you've got a man, and you've got a woman. Uh, you've got an individual, and you've got crowds. You've got illnesses, and you've got demon possession. Uh, you've got public settings, and you've got private settings. Just the vast scope of what Jesus is doing here. But it's not just that he heals. I want you to notice how he heals. Look at the end of verse 40. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. I mean, surely he could have just like waved his hands over the entire crowd, healed every single person there like instantaneously at once. Like, all right, folks, you're good to go. Good night, good night. See you later. But no, he lays his hands on each and every one, caring for each and every individual person one at a time with compassion as they come to him. Friends, is there not something just uniquely wonderful about these intimate encounters that we see in the Gospels? Like Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus healing each member of the multitudes one at a time. I mean, Jesus, we just saw this in last week's narrative. He's engaged in this cosmic level battle against the demonic realm. Right? He is releasing, he is liberating those who are captives to Satan. Right? Ultimately, he's going to accomplish that in his death on the cross by which he will crush the head of the serpent. But this Jesus, he is engaged in this cosmic level battle. But that same Jesus is here portrayed as personally, one-on-one, healing this old lady, individually ministering to this bedridden woman in her own home. And he's portrayed as individually laying his hands, caring for each person in the crowd. He's not like, no, I'm, I'm too busy. I've got these cosmic level things going on. I, I just don't have time. No, he makes time for these intimate one-on-one expressions of his compassion. Brothers and sisters, that is the most precious truth for those of us who are redeemed to meditate on. Like, just think about that. The Lord of the universe, 
the Savior of the world, the one to whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, the one who even now is upholding the universe by the word of his power, he is also a wonderfully personal Savior who cares for each and every one of his individual sheep. Leaving the 99 in the open country to go after the one that is lost, even you. And so yes, Jesus loves sinners, right? Yes, Jesus died for all sinners who would repent and believe in him. That is a true statement, and that is a wonderful statement. That is a statement upon which all of us who are Christians, like we're staking our eternity upon that. But also consider the truth that Jesus loves you, singular That Jesus died for you and for your sins. That God set his love upon you and chose you before the foundation of the world. That Jesus Christ intercedes for you. That whenever you pray, he mediates for you. For those of us who grew up in Christian homes, Maybe the first song you ever learned as a child might contain one of the most profound and striking statements for a believer of any age. Jesus loves me, this I know. Sometimes we can be so focused on the the big picture, like redemptive historical, like objective truths of the gospel. And we should be focused on the big picture, redemptive historical, objective truths of the gospel. But at the same time, we cannot forget what a wonderfully personal savior we have in Jesus. These stories remind us that the same Jesus who came to destroy the works of the devil the same Jesus who displays his sovereignty over all physical afflictions, the same Jesus who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he is the same Jesus who tends to the individual needs of this one woman. And he's the same Jesus who lays his hands on each and every person who comes to him for healing after the sun sets. And he's the same Jesus who loves you and cares for you your child of God. Story number two, the multitudes. Now there's a question that naturally comes up when we read stories like this, like the ones we just read with the mother-in-law, with the multitudes. Maybe some of you are wondering this right now. Like do healing and exorcism ministries like this, do they still exist today? And the answer you're going to have to wait till the end of the sermon. And that's not just because I'm trying to give you a cliffhanger. It's because the answer to that question depends on how we understand story number three. Which brings us now to story number three. We get verses 42 to 44. The mission. Now Jesus makes clear what his ultimate mission is. Look at verse 42. Uh, and when it was day. Uh, so let's just kind of hit pause here and, and make sure we understand like the timeline. Let me get the timeline straight. Uh, scan your eyes back to verse 31. Jesus went down to Capernaum. 
and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. So that's Saturday morning. Jesus teaches, and then he casts out the demon. In verse 38, he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. So that's Saturday afternoon that he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Verse 40, now when the sun was setting, so that's Saturday evening, after sunset, that Jesus heals the multitudes. And presumably, you've got this large crowd, and it says that Jesus laid hands on them one by one. And so this is stretching late into the night. Now, verse 42, and when it was day. So this is bright and early the next morning. This is Sunday morning. It says he departed and went into a desolate place. I mean, this is like Jack Bauer. It's just exhausting just thinking about all of the things that he's doing in 24 hours. But what is Jesus doing in this desolate place? Well, Luke is silent. But Mark tells us in Mark 135, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And what did he do there? There he prayed. Luke's going to tell us a lot more about Jesus' prayer life uh, later in chapter 5. And so uh, we will save a deeper discussion for then. But let me point out just one thing here, which is that we might think I mean, given all that happened in the last 24 hours, like, Jesus, you had so much going on yesterday. You did so much good for so many people so late into the night. Like, we totally get it if you just want to sleep in and skip your time of prayer. And you might think, his popularity is at an all-time high. Like, there's a lot to do today, Jesus. A lot of people are waiting to see you today. Well, maybe we think he'd skip out on prayer because he's just too busy. But now in spite of all of that, or perhaps because of all of that, what does he do? He goes into a desolate place and he prays to his heavenly father. But there's apparently no place so desolate that the crowd can't find you. And if you are a parent with young children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The crowds find him. Verse 42, they would have kept him from leaving them. Like they've seen everything that he can do. They just want to keep him forever. We'll never get sick again. We'll never have to deal with a demon amongst us again. So Capernaum, if you think about it, it's like the opposite end of the spectrum from Nazareth. People of Nazareth, they hated him. Uh, They wanted to kill him. They drove him out. The people of Capernaum, they love him. They want to keep him forever. But the people of Capernaum, just like the people of Nazareth, they get it completely wrong. They don't understand Jesus' mission. Uh, They think that Jesus is just a healer, just a miracle worker who's there to meet their physical needs. That's why they want him to stay because they misunderstand his mission. And so look at how Jesus corrects them. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. That's my mission. There's a lot in that one sentence, and so let's just kind of think about what Jesus is saying there. First we see that Jesus very plainly is not obligated to be what the Capernaumites 
want him to be any more than he was obligated to be what the Nazarenes wanted him to be. So verse 44, he's going to go to the other towns as well. He's going to go and preach all over the land of the Jews. But second, uh, that phrase, uh, I must preach, well, you may remember from when we studied Luke chapter 2, that story of Jesus, uh, his parents looking for him in the temple. You'll remember what he said, I must be in my father's house. And we talk then about the idea of divine necessity, right? That Jesus must fulfill his mission and his purpose. Well, here we see that idea again. Jesus must preach. He has to preach because that's what he was sent to do. That's his mission. But third, look at the content of his preaching. It's the good news of the kingdom of God. And that's a concept, right, the kingdom of God that we are going to see over and over and over in this gospel. Uh, it's basically the idea of God's saving rule. And, and Jesus is preaching the good news that the king of that kingdom has now arrived in him. And that's exactly what Isaiah 61 said the spirit-anointed Messiah would do. Right? Look at verse 18. What has the Spirit-anointed Messiah come to do? He has anointed me to proclaim good news, and that is being fulfilled in Jesus. He is the gospel-preaching, good news-heralding Messiah King who has come to inaugurate his kingdom. The one who would die for the sins of his people uh, to redeem all who would put their trust in him. And so Jesus is preaching that good news. That the kingdom, the king of that kingdom, has now arrived in him. The spirit-anointed Messiah from Isaiah 61, Jesus, well, he's now here. But now let's take a step back and let's think about this. Story number three, the mission. Jesus makes clear the reason he has come to earth. It was not primarily to heal the sick or to cure the afflicted. I mean, think about that for a second. Like, if Jesus did make that his mission, like if that's all that he did, he just stuck around in Capernaum and he devoted his entire earthly ministry to healing them, uh, he would have been the most popular and loved person in history. But no, his mission was to preach and to bring about the kingdom of God. So then if that's why he came, if that's the reason that he came, well, then why does he even do miracles of healing? Why does he even do exorcisms? Like, why not just preach and teach about the kingdom of God? Of course, part of the answer is that he is compassionate, right? We never want to overlook that. And we've spoken at length about that already. But kind of bigger picture, the main reason that Jesus did miracles, like the primary purpose of his healings, was that they would bear witness to what he was saying. Uh, That is, his healings would give him credibility. They would authenticate, they would back up these things that he was saying about who he was and what he came to do. That all of that that I'm saying is indeed true. And so in the Gospel of John, 
these miracles are referred to as signs. Because signs point to something. And so these miracles point to the truth of Jesus' message. That he is indeed the savior of the world. And that's not the case just with Jesus and his miracles. It's pretty much true of all miracles that we see in the Bible. Therefore, the purpose of authenticating the messenger of God. uh, To show that the one who is performing those miracles is really speaking for God. Is really sent from God. So for example, let's think about Moses. Back in Exodus chapter 3, right? God calls Moses, right? Think of the burning bush. He gives him this task to lead the Israelites out of slavery. Uh, But Moses is a little bit apprehensive. Uh, They're not going to listen to me. Uh, They're not going to believe that the Lord really uh, appeared to me. So what does God tell him to do? Throw your staff on the ground and it's going to become a serpent. Put your hand in your cloak and it's going to become leprous. He gives him miracles to perform. Why? In order to authenticate his message so that the people would see that sign and believe that God sent him and then believe that what he is saying is true. Exodus chapter 4. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, well, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, well, what should you do, Moses? Another miracle. You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it onto the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. You see that? The primary purpose of miracles in the Bible is to authenticate the message of the one performing the miracle. Same thing is true of the apostles, who did miracles, the signs of an apostle, And as a result, their message, uh, their gospel preaching, the building up of the church, the epistles, what has credibility. And that's exactly what Jesus says about his own miracles. John chapter 10, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. What is their purpose? They bear witness about me. John 5.36, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, these miracles, these healings, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John 10.38, if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So to summarize, Why does Jesus do miracles like the ones that we saw today? These miracles of healings and exorcisms? Well, there's many reasons. Uh, Compassion being near the very top. But primarily, he does them to authenticate what he says about the kingdom of God, right? About him being the spirit-anointed Messiah from Isaiah 61. Like that all of that is indeed true. So as promised, let's get back to that question from earlier. Do healing and exorcism ministries like this still exist today? Well, arguing strictly from the function and purpose of miracles, remember, miracles are for authenticating the messenger and his message. And if we understand that in the Bible, 
in the completed canon of the scriptures, we have the full and complete revealed word of God, well, then it stands to reason that there is no reason for us to expect that God would still work miracles like he did in the days of Jesus and his apostles because the message is already complete and needs no further authentication. Now, let me clarify. Should we then pray for the sick? Absolutely. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Does God answer such prayers? Yes, according to his will, absolutely, he can heal. But in terms of someone having the miraculous gift of healing like we see here in Jesus, no, we should not expect that. And not only should we not expect it, we don't see it. I mean, if you compare what Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 4, to the the healing crusades and the deliverance ministries and miracle workers that you might see advertised today, they're not even in the same ballpark. Look again at the language that Luke uses in describing what Jesus is doing here. In verse 40, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases. This is not Jesus, like, hand-selecting a a few people from the crowd that he thinks he can handle and ailments that are kind of vague enough that maybe they would confuse an emotional experience for actual physical healing. No, this is come one, come all. All kinds of different ailments and all kinds of different maladies and all kinds of different sicknesses. And look at the end of verse 40. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. What percent of the people who came to Jesus on that night were healed 100. So that's what we should expect if these healing ministries of today are real. But that's not what actually happens. And unfortunately, ministries like this, they've done untold amounts of damage, just giving people false hope, taking their money, even blaming them for a lack of faith when they don't actually get healed. These miracles that we see here, Luke chapter 4, this healing, this casting out of demons that we see Jesus perform, it's altogether different, both in its nature and its purpose, right? In its nature, it is inexplicably miraculous. This is the hand of God. And also in its purpose, The purpose is to first and foremost authenticate the message of Jesus that he is who he said he was. The spirit-anointed Messiah who has come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And so hopefully I've made clear that Jesus' primary mission in coming to earth was not to heal people, was not to make people physically well. No, his mission was to proclaim and to bring about the kingdom of God through his death and through his resurrection. Like he did not come to provide physical and material comfort and healing for the sick and hurting as much as he came to provide a spiritual salvation for sinners who would trust in him. Luke 19.10, right? This is the thesis statement of the book. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. That's his mission. Jesus does not come to establish an earthly kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. No, he comes to establish 
a spiritual one. But, my friends, as, as we close, I want you to consider this. While it was not his primary purpose, we have to realize that one of the wonderful, glorious benefits that we who are redeemed have to look forward to because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf is our new, imperishable resurrection bodies that we will one day receive. That the mortal body that you're in now is going to one day put on immortality. And so your current body, subject to disease and illness, and fever, and decay, pain, suffering, aging, and ultimately death. Because Christ has defeated death, we know that our bodies will be made new. And so I'm speaking specifically to the afflicted saint my dear brothers and sisters who are just especially dealing with physical afflictions. Uh, Perhaps it's just in this season. Uh, Perhaps you've been dealing with this for for many years. Uh, Perhaps this is a cross that you will carry for the rest of your life until the Lord calls you home. My dear brother, my dear sister, press on. Continue to fight the good fight because your king awaits you in his kingdom. One in which little foreshadowings of his victory over illness and pain and death like we see here in Luke chapter 4 well, they're brought to their full realization in an eternal life in which illness and pain and death are banished forevermore. Indeed, our king has come. He has died. He has risen. He has ascended. Now he rules and he reigns forever and he makes all things new. Let's pray. Father, how we love Jesus. Father, we pray that you would Give us a greater love for Jesus as we see him in these narratives, as we see who he is and what he has done for us. God, we pray that you would, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, grow our love for our Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.